to Damn Founders Talk. I'm joined by John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. Raygun is an award-winning application monitoring company founded by John Daniel, better known as JD, and his partner, Jamie Boyd, in Wellington, New Zealand. They have revenues in the eight digits annually and have done so with very little funding. Full disclosure, Raygun is an active sponsor of JS Party and a prior sponsor of the Changelog and Changelog News, but... This episode is not sponsored by Raygun. Today's conversation with JD shares so much wisdom. Before I ship any episode of Finder's Talk, I listened to the full-length episode, and during my preview of this show, I found myself nodding my head and taking notes. I hope you do the same. And as you know, we're backed by some awesome partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We trust Linode because they keep our infra fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at launchdarkly.com. Linode is simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing that developers trust. Linode is our cloud of choice. We trust them, and we think you should build anything you're working on, a fun side project, or that next big infra move at work with Linode. The best part, you can get started on Linode with $100 in free credit. Get all the details at linode.com slash changelog, or text changelog to 474747, and get instant access to that $100 in free credit. Again, linode.com slash changelog. I think one thing that's interesting, John Daniels, that uh, is the, the business you've built from where you've built it. You know, I'm here in the U.S., Houston, Middle America, and you know, to compete with on a global scale, you've done an amazing job building a company. I think the one thing we want to talk about today is like that journey for you. You know, yeah, it is you know where you're from, and maybe the perspective of doing what you've done and the struggles you've had from where you're from not so much the country but just like not in silicon valley having to sort of battle you know some of the goliaths that might be there what where should we begin that story for you well it's going to be a long story which is going to suit the podcast format um but yeah i'll start by just giving a little bit of my my history so i was born in a um in a town in new zealand called palmerston north and it makes the town i'm in now look really big it sort of was about a 35 40,000 person town. And when I was about eight years old, my my father bought us a, a family PC in the 90s. It was a 486SX25 with eight megabytes of RAM and 213 megabytes of hard drive. And I can almost still tell you how every kilobyte of that disk was allocated as I was always trying to find space for a new game or programming thing, because um, 213 megs was, was pretty constrictive. And at about nine years old, this was sort of the Windows 3.1 and Microsoft DOS sort of days, and uh, I just was going through the commands, every command that there was in DOS, right? So mem, edit, whatever. And I, I kind of got to QBasic, and I was like, okay, this looks like edit, but there's run and other things in here. And so I started reading the documentation, because this was obviously pre-internet, and um, I realized I could write programs in here. And so I started writing a couple of little programs and it just blew my mind. The, the way that I've always described programming to me was that I was a kid that was just mad into Lego and in particular Lego Technics, the, the cogs and axles and, and all of that stuff. And, you know, you'd always be begging your parents, can you buy me this? Can you buy me that? Can you buy me this? And, you know, it's like, no, that stuff's expensive, you know, but 
Discovering a programming language was like finding a box with an infinite number of Lego pieces and just being like, okay, whatever I want to build, whatever I can dream up, I can do it in the computer. And I don't have to ask my parents to buy another if statement or a, you know, I can, I can just do this. And if I, and if I can't fit it, if I can't figure out how to do it, it, it seemed to me that that was a limitation of my gray matter, not a limitation of the computer. Now, I know there's obviously performance and things have improved, but you could still sort of try to figure out better ways to use it. And so I kind of felt deeply, deeply in love with software development at, at around nine. And I often say to folks, you know, because people would say to me, oh, JD, like you, you learned to program at nine. You must be really, really clever. And I'd say, no, the way to think about it is a nine-year-old with no external help could read a bit of documentation and do this. It's you shouldn't put programming on a pedestal. You should say to yourself, it's actually that easy that a nine-year-old can teach themselves. I think we're starting to see that sort of mentality shift away a little bit as computers and the, the tech industry have become just the way of life versus how they were in the 90s. But that really started me off on the journey. And then I was always a kid that, that was always sort of looking ahead. I always wanted, I was in a hurry. I always wanted to start in business, kind of, you know, make some money. Um, I remember buying cardboard boxes with my brother and working out just how many one and $2 coins I could fit in there and how much money that would be if we could just fill it up as fast as we could. <laughs> and so <laughs> never did fill that bloody box. But you tried. <laughs> we, we did. We did try. And so I sort of went, oh, I wonder if there's any sort of future in software. And so again, pre-internet, I put in my Encarta 94 CD-ROM and I typed in software and, and it brought up this article about this guy, uh, Bill Gates. And I was reading that and I was like, oh, you know, this guy seems to be doing a ride out of software. Maybe there's some money in this passion that I've, I've sort of discovered for myself. And so that meant that probably from about the age of nine and a half, ten, 10, I, I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to sort of enter the software industry. I knew that I wanted to own a business. I didn't know what the business would do. I just kind of knew that these two things would intersect uh, in a big way. And then through the late 90s, I sold uh, software on floppy disks at my high school. I ran a PC repair business, sort of that sort of most cities now have that sort of mobile PC repair folks that drive to your house or something. I used to do that in like a 1970-something Subaru, just the most budget car you've ever, ever seen. I applied for one job at the end of university, and I thought, look, if they hire me, I'll learn what a real business does. And if they don't hire me, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And fortunately, they did hire me. And so I went and I spent three years seeing what a real business looked like um, before striking out on my own. So that was, I mean, that's that's a lot of history right there. And we've only just got to the start. Yeah. So <laughs> take a yeah. small breather. Um, but yeah, an obsessive kid would be the way I'd describe myself. One thing you point out is this infinite box of Legos. And I think that's an interesting perspective to consider because logically that makes sense because there is no real limit to software. That's the cool thing about software. Unlike hardware, you do have physical limitations. You've got Moore's Law to compete with. You've got mm -hmm. CPUs. You've got RAM restrictions. You've got hard disk restrictions. But with software, I suppose you're bound by those limits. But, you know, that's the challenge is to get around and through and over all those obstacles. Yeah. You must have been a pretty wise nine-year-old to have that <laughs> philosophy. I mean, where did you get that wisdom? Dumb luck or somebody – did you have some true influence in your life? Well, I, I would say – so my parents – did run it, run a business. My father was a wooden joiner, worked from home. And so that did lead us to talk about a lot of things around finance and business at home. And so that definitely had an, an impact on me. I've often sort of wondered a little bit about this. And, and I, I kind of feel that at the core 
and I don't really know where this comes from, but at my core, I tend to believe that as much as I wish there was an afterlife or, or some sort of thing, it's like, you got one shot. Like, let's, let's do this, right? Like, that, that's kind of just the, the, if you were to go down to ring zero in, in my kernel, it's like, okay, we've, we've got a limited amount of time. <laughs> mm-hmm. We want to do something cool. And I just, I, I did fall in love with those areas. I also, you know, uh, not really when I was nine, but once we kind of did get access to the internet and I could sort of start learning a lot more, going back to that point about software v. hardware, learning about people like John Carmack in the game industry and how he had sort of pushed forward the gaming uh, and graphics envelope in the 90s, that really inspired me too as that sort of, you know, wow, the, the human brain can overcome the physical limitations, you know, if you apply yourself mm-hmm. to those problems. And so that sort of always taught me, and I do feel a little bit, it's like nothing is really impossible. And to, to use the Bill Gates line, and I, I don't think people ever really properly paid enough attention to the fact that he repeated this all the time, which was never stop believing in the, in the magic of software or the power of software. And it's so true. Like, I still think we're only barely scratching the surface of what is actually possible with it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Bill Gates, like it was no big deal, right? <laughs> to some degree, right? Bill Gates is probably the biggest person in in many respects in software. One of the bigger successes. Well, it was kind of funny the other day. Somebody was on Twitter and they were like, "Oh yeah, people hate Jeff Bezos, but you know that we never felt that way about Gates." And I'm like, "Are you kidding me? Like, we, we Gates was vilified in the '90s, he, right?" He was like, <laughs> Um, and yes. even, even at high school, I was buying books. There's a book. One, one of my first books was actually the, the Microsoft Way. And it sort of walked through Microsoft up until uh, about 97, I think. Um, you know, And that was an interesting book because it covered, for example, in, in that time that they were just crushing everything, kind of like Amazon a little bit today. If, they, if there was even a rumor of entering an industry, that industry's stock prices would all collapse. You know, It was like, oh, here comes big, scary Microsoft. And the book really digs into how, um, and I do think it was the first time they, they really slipped, was when they tried to take out into it. And they threw everything at Microsoft money, trying to win the personal finance and small business space, and they lost. And they lost to a small competitor. And they, they did try and throw the kitchen sink at them. And this book really cataloged a lot of that, which was super interesting to me. That's one story I'm not familiar with. What's the most interesting pieces of the story? Well, it was just that it would be like, imagine, and Intuit wasn't an upstart by any stretch. You know, they were still a significant business, but they were effectively, a, a, you know, an ant compared to Microsoft. Well, imagine if somebody came along today and, and they said, oh, Amazon's going to go into competition with them. And Amazon tried to do everything as anti-competitively as possible and still lost, and lost. you know yeah. it's um that's when you kind of go oh you know what's the what's the line from the avengers movie if you if you can make god bleed that's all you need to do you know people will stop believing yeah <laughs> into it they were TurboTax, quickbooks yeah i suppose they eventually acquired mint right i mean so they, they became did. a goliath in the as that's you right the personal the personal finance and tax space yep and microsoft was Absolutely trying to obtain that that category. They even, I believe, tried to acquire into it back in the day. Um, but yeah, I, I found that that interesting. I mean, it's funny, you know, I've never really been a person that's wildly into sports. And uh, a couple of years, well, last year, actually, I was delivering the, um, a speech to my old high school for the folks that, that, that were leaving. 
And, you know, they talk a lot about like um, saying, because I knew I was an odd kid that I knew exactly kind of what I wanted to do. Um, and I realized that was not common. And so I said, you know, who here knows what they want to do? There's about 400 people here that were, were graduating. And I would say less than 5% of the hands went up. You know, that's what I kind of expected. And I kind of, I was leaving and I had this realization that for high school, which in New Zealand high school is the last school before you go off to university, if you go off to university, it's less about the what, but I think the high schools in that focus heavily on like, what do you want to do? And I don't think a lot of them realize that most people are into sports. Business is just competition, right? If you thrive, you like to be on a team and you like to win, it almost doesn't really matter what it is that you're doing. The what is is far less relevant than maybe the how. And in particular, I went to an all-boys school, so this was 400 boys. Shifting that sort of framing to the fact that it's kind of like you're playing a sports game for eight hours a day, five days a week, you know, um, that's a that sounds far more exciting, right? <laughs> than like, do I want to clean drains? Do I want to wash cars? Do I do I want to write software? Do I you know that's actually quite hard, but where you derive your your value is actually yeah. competition, I think, or at least for a subset of us. <laughs> and not everybody has that feeling. I, and I know that uh, you know some people thrive in competition, and some people just I don't know maybe it's not part of their their DNA to compete. Not so much. I suppose that's you know to some degree competing by not competing, right? Because like you just sort of <laughs> forfeited, right? What's interesting, I think, is that you called yourself an odd boy in the fact that you knew what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question to you is really one: How did you know? Because I think you know, and you'd mentioned the five percent of the hands gone up, and how you sort of expected that. So that means that you have a predisposition that you think that those coming out of high school on their way to university. seems like a likely number to think about, hey, I know where I want to go in life and what I want to do. Because I think, you know, do we begin life knowing what we want to do in life? And I think that's kind of the journey, right? It's like, what's the end game to some degree? And even many ways, like our whole life is about choices, right? We're the sum of our choices. Mm -hmm. You know, we're also the sum of whom we surround ourselves with. So in many respects, (laughs) people don't think about how important and how influential they're their crew is, so to speak, their their inner circle, their family, their friends. Like, <laughs> this is super crucial stuff. But yet, you knew what you wanted to do. You walk into some categories here that are, I think, difficult to discuss, especially if we were in the in a forum like Twitter, because this there's a there is a strong narrative of like almost I have no agency over myself. Everything has happened to me and therefore everybody else somehow owes it to me to fix this. And I think there's a lot of people that are going to spend a heck of a lot of time in their life blaming and not taking action. Now, that is not to say that folks do not necessarily have systemic or other issues holding them back. The, the, the mistake is thinking somebody else is going to fix it. I'm not saying those things don't exist. But you, you hit on a really interesting one there around who you surround yourself with. And I've, yeah. I've been pretty militant on this point even through my teenage years and i heard a a saying once you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with and i don't think it's wildly shocking that some of the folks that seem to have the most challenges or seem to have the most problems and then you look at the folks they associate with and you sit there going this is an entire system set up to hold you down Mm -hmm. you are choosing to stay in there now there are times where you don't have a choice. You know, I was very fortunate to have 
wonderful parents, fantastic siblings. I had a great experience being raised. I was very fortunate to have the capacity to play with a computer, to have the free time for that. I didn't have, you know, there were certain privileges in there. But once you're in out in the world yourself, you, you do have a strong ability to then choose who you spend your time with. And, you know, it may sound ruthless, but there are certain people where I've sort of started to become friends with them and then gone, actually, you know what? This is not going to take me where I want. And I'm not talking about just a business goal. I'm just talking about like, do I really want to dwell on these topics day to day? Is this where my mental cycle should be going? And probably because I was a bit of a nerd as a kid, I often think of myself a wee bit as a as like a computer, I often, you know, just think, okay, well, let's say your brain was the CPU. And like I say, let's say you broke it down. Why would you choose to allocate a certain percentage of your CPU cycles to something completely non-productive or effective for you? That's just a waste of time. You, you wouldn't run something up on a computer today just to burn out one core because, you know, you felt obligated to do it, but it didn't give you anything <laughs> in return, right? So it can sound kind of, I don't know, it sounds negative. It can sound ruthless, but Frankly, the people that are bringing you down, get rid of them. The people that are helping you up, you know, double down on them. I was always very aggressive at trying to find people that were maybe five to 10 years older than me that I could learn from, that could teach me. That first job that I got out of university, my first thing that I was, I was like, all right, who owns this company? Who are the directors on the board? Who do I want to understand how they're thinking? Because this is going to help me better understand what we're trying to achieve here. And it's going to help me uh, basically not smash my head against walls that aren't going to move mm -hmm. because you get to know what they actually want to achieve in this business. I know some of these things, you, you get people that kind of go, wow, why, how did you think that? And it's like, you just look at the situation. The business is here. <laughs> it has shareholders. Everybody knows that's how a business kind of works, right? Like, what do they want? Because that's why it's here. <laughs> yeah. People underestimate mindset. They underestimate mindset, which is what you were studying there, a, a mental framework, you know, who owns the business, who are the board of directors, what do they want? That's a, what is their mindset? Yep. You know, what is their mental framework? And then also environment, which is like those you surround yourself with. People underestimate the impact of those three things, like how you think, which is the soil of your brain, mm -hmm. right? The things you think and how you think, your mindset, your mental framework, that's the soil for which you grow your life. Your, your brain is what powers everything you do. It makes you you, right? Yep. And then your environment, the environment you place yourself in, those you surround yourself with, people underestimate those kind of key factors there. And back to what you had said before in terms of, you know, circumstances and, you know, the environment on Twitter in the fact that people want to blame other people or in, in your words back to you, someone's going to solve their problems for them. I think you got to take some charge, take charge of your life you know, in those regards. And there's some circumstances where there's obviously some details that need, need to be fleshed out. But in the grand scheme of things, you are the product of your environment you place yourself in and the choices you make. And you are also the product of the challenges, problems, and opportunities sure. that you do inherit. But absolutely, you you do gain more and more say over your yourself with time. And I think that's the thing. You could sit down and you could draw a line down a middle piece of paper and kind of look at the things that you can and can't control. I mean, I'll give you an example again in that first job. I started as a graduate software developer. I moved to Wellington with $200, right? Because frankly, while I'd, I'd made a little bit of money through high school and uni with these jobs and things that I'd been sort of doing as side hustles, 
Um, I was also quite aware that the last vacation at the end of university was probably the last time I was going to get two months of nothing until I retired, um, which I may never do. So it was kind of like, all right, I'm, I'm going out big here. I'm going to spend everything I got. So I moved down to Wellington with 200 bucks in my pocket, got this job. And then, of course, I'm in an environment and you're going, okay, so what, are the, what, what do the shareholders want? Okay, cool. Now, somebody might go, but what if I don't want what the shareholders want? Well, the next thing I did was kind of go, right, we have a staff share program. How many shares do I have to buy in this company before I could start to make a credible argument for appointing me to the board of this business, right? I do want to have a say on the environment. Firstly, I don't want to alienate the people that are the directors and operators of this business. Secondly, I want to find a path so that I can be one of the directors and operators of this business. Uh, start to look at the shareholders list, figure out who I'm going to have to try and buy out, figure out how I'm going to get the capital to do this. I was fortunate that while it was a fast-growing business, it wasn't a massive business. Um, so it, it did look like it was something that was within my capability to do over a few years. And the other thing too is that I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to Bill Gates since we've kind of touched on this topic. I like it. But he, he has this saying where he says, people overestimate what they can achieve in one year and they underestimate what they can achieve in 10 and you see that all the time, which is like, well, if this is going to take me, and, and to be fair, I, I think you can almost segment a little bit. I'm, I know I'm gen, well, it's probably worth saying for a handful of people that may be very upset hearing some of these things. These are all broad generalizations, right? There is always an exception to these rules. But generally speaking, I see that the more success somebody has, the longer term horizon they took. There will be people that go, if I can't end up influencing this business or, or whatever their situation might be within one month then it's their problem and it sucks. And it's like, maybe mm. it's one year, maybe it's three years. There is no way a guy with 200 bucks was going to buy a meaningful amount of equity <laughs> in a business right at the start. And somehow you did. Well, I actually, there's a story there is I got so much. I assume you did. I assume you did at least. I got very close. And then there was one shareholder that I needed to buy out who had agreed he'd left the business and he said, okay, it was just a, a verbal. And then he backed out and, his reason for backing out was actually that he had retired and this was one of his last things that connected him back to the working world and he loved the excuse that he got to kind of rock into the, the office and chat with people. And so I, I really didn't begrudge him on sort of going back on that, um, but that was actually the turning point where I thought, look, I'm not actually going to achieve this mission here. I'm, if I'm going to do something and I want to be in charge of it, I'm going to have to strike out on my own here. And so at that point was when I went to two people, one of them was my co-founder for, for a short period, so I won't, won't dwell on that. But the other guy, his name is Jeremy Boyd. So <laughs> just to make our company really good today, uh, the two co-founders are JB and JD. Um, and we have an internal joke that if your name starts with J, you've got about an 80% likelihood that we'll hire you in the in the recruitment process. Anyway, I, I said to him, I was like, all right, we got to go do something ourselves. And he was like, yep, all right, let's let's do this. And so we struck out and, and started uh, our business there, uh, to be honest, I wasn't upset that I couldn't get get to where I needed to in the last business. I understood that guy's point of view. It was just the right time. I'd saved up a lot of money through those few years, and because I'd been so obsessed with trying to buy stocks, um, I will say my mother, when I first started down here, you know, she'd ring me up and just tell me like, "Hey, look, you need to enjoy your life. Go and spend some of what you're earning on stuff that you want, like a mountain bike, or you know." And I was like, "No, no, no, no. I'm not going to spend any money." And <laughs> It's probably worth noting at this point that um, I would describe myself as aging down. <laughs> so 
like 13 to about 25 year old JD was a, <laughs> he was a pretty serious dude. Like I was the guy at university that had a briefcase and a college shirt. Like I was that idiot. You know, I was the guy I'd probably tease now. I didn't own a pair of jeans until I got to about 30 years old. And, you know, now that I'm in my late thirties, it's kind of like <laughs> pretty cash. But in part, it was because I was really focused on, I want to build up this machine. I need to get this. I need to stay focused on this. I want to be really good at it. Even when I was working as that software developer back at that first company, I would come home every night and do about three to four hours of extra work just learning because I didn't like the fact that I was the guy I'd been coding since nine and suddenly I didn't feel like I was the smartest guy in the room anymore. Mm. And I actually somewhat enjoyed that because it made, it brought out that sort of fight in me. I was like, right, well, I'm just going to learn faster than everybody else, right? Like I'm going to win. I'm going to do this. Um, and that's always been, it's always part, part of my psychology and it's not always healthy to use my mother as a, as another talking point. She reminds me that I have a younger brother. He's a year younger than me. And he got a wiggly tooth before I did. And um, my mum says, my brother goes, oh, look, mum, my, my tooth is wiggly. Um, you know, cool. And uh, we go to bed that night and I, I come out at like nine o'clock at night and to tell my mum that my tooth has come out because I, I don't remember this. I'd apparently laid in bed and ripped a tooth out of my mouth to beat my brother. And she said, I just had blood pouring out of my mouth in this tooth. <laughs> going, oh boy. No, but I beat him. <laughs> so you're relentless. <laughs> yeah, I bet. By any means necessary, you will do it. <laughs> I don't know if I'd rip a tooth out these days, to be honest. Again, maybe the aging down part. <laughs> or, you know, now now the teeth aren't going to grow back, so they're a little bit more valuable. <laughs> right. So at what point then, you mentioned your JB mm -hmm. is your is your co-founder in Raygun. Yep. We're, we're at that point of the story now. So why error tracking? Why error monitoring? What was the, you mentioned university, what did you study there, this first job, what were you doing? Like, how did you get to this space in particular in software? Yeah, so we actually didn't start off there. We started off building some other de software development tools. And, you know, this was where things actually got murky because my vision for my future was to own a software business. I didn't actually know what it was going to do. I didn't even, like, in a weird way, my goal, my purpose to be the owner of a software company for the, you know, had been with me for about 12 or 13 years at this point. And once I got there, it was kind of like, hey, hang on a minute. Now, what do we do? Like all this time thinking about this. And I kind of got to this point. And, and so we actually, we muddled around for a few years, building different things. They, they were like products. We, we could wipe our own face. You know, the business was making money, which was good. But we also did some, we, we bootstrapped the business. So we did uh, consulting work. Uh, we actually had Microsoft New Zealand come to the party on day one of founding our company and give us a quarter of a million dollar contract. Uh, and that was really our seed capital. Uh, we, we built some software for Microsoft uh, that demonstrated how teams should build modern web applications, and they used that as demoware around the world. Um, now, that actually came out of the relationship that Jeremy had built with Microsoft New Zealand. And this goes back to your point, you know, of, uh, you know, who you associate with, where are you investing your time? He was putting a lot of his time into supporting the local software development community, running user groups and all of that. And so he was well known, well liked um, and generally appreciated in the local um, software community. Surprise, you know, it, it worked out for us. And to use that famous, you know, Steve Jobs quote, you know, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. 
you know, Jeremy wasn't supporting the community because he wanted a deal out of it. Um, he was doing it because that's what he loved to do. And then this positive thing came. So he'd actually put in not expecting anything out and then got something out of it. And that was hugely valuable to us. Over those few years, we also partnered up and built other companies. So we were fairly well known as being a pretty good software development team, high performance software, good outcomes. But we took equity in those companies. So we built New Zealand's largest philanthropic website as the technical partner where we owned a part of that. We built a business valuation SaaS company. We built an email mining software company. Um, we, we did a few things like that on the side. That was all good. And in 2012, we decided we were going to build the error tracking software and that we were going to call it Raygun. Now, our company at this point had actually only been, had been called Mindscape. And um, I'll tell you what, nerds naming companies, man. How did we come up with the name? I mentioned we kind of, we had three founders at the very beginning. And we basically all just came up with these names, put them in an Excel file, ordered them, and then we all scored them one to 10. And then we added those three rows together and sorted the, the sum. And then we just went with the top one, which was Mindscape. And I remember there was this one right down the list, Raygun. And I just remember thinking, well, it was actually Railgun, but anyway, it was from JB. And I just remember thinking, that's the stupidest name for a company I'd ever heard of. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. And we were trying to come up with this name for this product. And it, it had now been like, five years or something, four or five years. And uh, it had always stuck with me. And I was like, you know what? The fact that I keep thinking about this must mean that there's some intrinsic uh, memorability to this name. And so we called it Raygun. I thought Railgun was a touch too esoteric, maybe towards the gamer community that maybe played things like Quake and, and Unreal, but to a, to a more normal person, they won't know what a railgun was. So that's why we went with railgun. You got me. I must be normal then because I don't know what a railgun is. So railgun is where you take, in, in, a, in a basic sense, uh, take a metal rod, you coil a wire around it, uh, outside of it, and effectively use a, an electromagnetic pulse. Uh, well, so you, you, you've electromagnetized the, the coil to force the projectile out very quickly. So... Um, they are actually deployed these days on some of, I believe, the, the U.S. And I, I'm not a military guy, so apologies to anybody where I get this wildly wrong. But, you know, a couple of the battleships and whatnot that, that the American Navy have, they can fire very long ranges, um, very strong projectiles from them. And then, hmm. therefore, in the 90s and early 2000s, they were common in, in computer games. But generally speaking, you're not running around with a handheld railgun. They're more mounted on a ship. But anyway, yeah, yeah. complicated to explain. It doesn't sound like error tracking software at all. But we built the error tracking software because we were reflecting a little bit on how we had built software in the past. And why was it that the software that Jeremy and I wrote was generally considered to be higher quality than what some other folks did? And I don't believe that for a second that it was because we were somehow just better programmers. It was because we had always instrumented our software to tell us about the errors and we just send us an email. And we did this back in 2004 when I'd started at this company. I actually learned it from Jeremy. And so we thought, why don't we build an entire product around this, like workflow and make it so other people, like surely if we find this useful for getting in front of bugs before customers even realize that that's a, that's a good thing. And so we built it, we put it into market in 2013, and it went um, went out the door. And we, we just sort of, at the time, thought of it as one of the many products in our catalog. I will say, recurring revenue versus sort of one-off sort of stuff. Oh, my goodness. I would, my hair is thin, 
But uh, I would be bald if it wasn't for recurring revenue. I, I love starting the month at the end of where last month was rather than starting the month at zero and having to try and get up. It was a powerful mechanic for our business. Anyway, we put that out and later that year, around August of 2013, we got approached by a mid-sized uh, US tech company to acquire our business to uh, obtain the Raygun software. And that was the moment where Jeremy and I, again, we bootstrapped to this point. We kind of sat back and went, hmm, we might be onto something here. <laughs> it was a little bit different. We hadn't really, we'd actually sold off some of those other businesses that we'd built or been part of building, but we're like, oh, okay, we, we should raise a bit of money and try and go a bit quicker here. So we did. We went out and raised, at that point, $1.3 million Kiwi. So it would be about, I don't know, 700000 US. So like nothing, right? And as part of that, the people that invested were actually the folks, more or less, the folks that we'd built those other businesses with. That They were like, this is our time to sort of like invest back with you guys. You know, we know and trust you. And that was that was pretty cool. I really appreciated that. Uh-huh. It was also, this is where um, I've, I've been told before by some folks that are generally more 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 uh, successful than me that this was a bad idea, but I was one of the largest investors in our own round because you know you always hear the the question about like oh you know dilution and founders make bad decisions because they don't want to dilute, but actually the value at the end is better blah 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 blah. And I was like, well, the best way to try and reduce my dilution is surely just to invest alongside everybody else. And so I did that, and that that's that's worked out well. And the business took off. It really took off for us. And and I know the video is not going to be in the podcast, but effectively, imagine your classic hockey stick. As much as I hate talking about hockey sticks, there's actually a really, really interesting point in here, which was there's this inflection point. And people would say to me, they're like, what happened there? (laughs) And I'd say, well, that's when we raised money. And they're like, what did you spend it on? And I was like, nothing. (laughs) They're like, what do you mean you spent it on nothing? And I was like, we didn't spend it. What we did was we, it actually just gave Jeremy and I the confidence to ignore all of our other products and just focus on the ray gun product, right? Because now we had this buffer that we could afford to ignore the other products. And just the act of then having the entire team in the company, and there was only like five or six of us at this point, focus on ray gun was what generated that revenue uptick. The growth took off, the awareness blew up. We then... You know, the classic thing, good luck begets more good luck. You know, um, we, we got a great write-up from uh, somebody in the industry who didn't even act. They, they actually knew us but didn't know that it was from our company at the time. And they wrote this amazing review online and they had a very, very popular blog. And that exploded the customer base uh, for a good few months. And, and really, the I know we'll talk about it, but effectively the rest was history. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's kind of what led us to getting to where we are today. Intense focus. That's interesting. I mean, I, it, so you hear these stories about what could you do if you focused on a certain problem, but that's really interesting that that your uptick was, you know, was based upon raising money and not spending it, but having, I suppose, the assurance, mm. you, you said confidence. And uh, I, mean, I think that's what I, what I do these conversations for is for nuggets like that, to hear somebody say like, my success today, one big portion of it was because we intensely focused. Yeah, the thing that was interesting to me with that, and I think it's partly what you're trying to say here, is I'd read this all the time, right? Say no to things, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I hadn't actually ever had a time where I could point to something where I could say, applied focus got this result. 
like you could kind of muddily assume it was working in places, but it was never as stark as that situation. Right. Yeah. I always find that interesting. I read a lot of books and uh, there's books I read where I say, to, I'm like, man, I wish I could just internalize every word of this because in theory, if you actually read books and retained all of the knowledge, you know, like we'd all be super geniuses pretty damn quick, which is actually why I'm a big believer in reading the good books multiple times um, because oh yeah, I think what that does is actually starts to strengthen various sort of neural pathways. And I won't say, oh, you know, I read this in the Microsoft way in 1998 or something. I'll think I came up with an idea not realizing that those pathways were already set from reading something in the past. I'll probably think mm -hmm. I'm really clever for coming up with it when it's actually straight from a book, but I'll never remember the book. So reread the books. Up next with JD, we talk about the most influential books we've read, the practices JD uses to remain sharp and focused, and his plans for making software and technology the number one export for New Zealand. But while I have your attention, I want to mention ChangeLaw++. ChangeLaw++ is our membership to enable our fans to directly support us and our work. It's 10 bucks a month or $100 a year. Make the ads disappear, get closer to the metal, and directly support us. Learn more at changelaw.com slash plus plus. You're, you're onto something with psychology because that's called neuroplasticity. Right. Yep. And your neuropathways, the, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. And so the more you run those neuropathways, the more strength they have to continue running. So it's imagine if you just keep building this road and refining it and making it easier to go faster to from point A to point B and you constantly refine and optimize. That's what you're doing with neuroplasticity. And so when you reread these books, which I totally love, that's a great idea. My question back to you is, which books have you read multiple times? Have you been your favorite? So two books, one book, any any book. What's your favorite to read twice or three times? It's a good question. I've got one. Well, yeah, what would you recommend first? Essentialism. Essentialism. I have not read that one. I will write it now. It's not minimalism. So it's not minimizing. It's focusing on only the essential. The vital few versus the trivial many. And that's kind of what your story is, JD, is, is in this example where, you know, you got this investment and you had this uptick, you had this intense focus, you focused on the vital few versus the trivial many. That's true. And so when you do that in life with intention and potentially with the right kind of environment, the right kind of people around you, you can do amazing things over 10 years versus a terrible thing in one. Re-say re the quote to me again, it was one year versus 10 year. People overestimate what they can achieve in one year and they underestimate what they can achieve in 10. Yeah, exactly. And my favorite chapter of that book is, I, I don't know the chapter number, but it's called Protect the Asset. It's generally about sleep, so getting good sleep, but more so about, about self-care and taking care of you because you can only be the you you are if you're you. That is bang on. I, I've never... And I know this has become cliche these days for, for some folks to say like, oh, no, I actually get a lot of sleep. I've always been a big sleeper. 
even as a teenager, you know, I'd have LAN parties, you know, get together, oh, yeah. plug them in. And I'd be the guy that would be like, especially if I was hosting, you know, I'd be like, okay, guys, it's got to midnight. i got to go to bed, you know, and I'd go have a sleep and I'd come back out at about seven o'clock, you know, um, in the morning that it will still be up red eyed. And I'm just like, I just didn't, I didn't have it in me. I didn't even have it in me at 16 or 17. I was never a night owl, you know, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. One thing that is also interesting was around the time we launched Raygun was when I took up running. And let me be the first to say, I am not a runner. I mean, that was a good wee while back now. Um, I'm a plotter at best, you know, and it is definitely a mind over matter situation. What's plotter? What's that mean? Imagine, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like overweight, but if you saw me running, I look like I'm kind of awkwardly doing it. Like I'm muddling through it, you know, like, uh, okay. uh it's, I'm no gazelle. Let's put it that way. Not bouncing along. You know, you see some runners and it's like, they're just floating along. No, no. Yes. I'm like hit the feet, barely touching the ground just gliding. Yeah. Every footstep for me is kind of like Thor landing on earth. Like, you know, let's smash into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> it's very awkward. <laughs> Anyway, but that was a great- But yeah, you love it. Well, I did it because at this point I was sort of, I was getting to about 30, the metabolism starting to slow down. I, I love computers. I have a desk job, you know, the weight's starting to come on, you know, it's just those sorts of things where you're going, actually, I need to, as you say, protect the asset, right? This is an investment in me. And, and what I actually found was really useful was running alone and having the time to think, and I would be out running and I'd go, hang on a minute, I've missed a trick here. There's like $50,000 we could make it work if I just did this thing. But I wouldn't have had the time to think about that. Um, now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come back to your book question just quickly. So I'm a big biography reader and I would look at stages in my life. So in, in my teenage years, I read a lot of self-help books, Tony Robbins, stuff like that. In my 20s, I went to a lot of business books, usually a touch more biographical than like, here's how to run a business. And then in my 30s, I've definitely gone far more heavy on the on the biographies. So the two books that more recently I've read a lot of a few times, one is The Snowball, uh, which is about, uh, it's a biography of Warren Buffett. It's a huge book. If you want to work out your biceps, buy the book, otherwise get the audio version. Like it. It is huge. It's a it's a big book. Thousand pages. Yeah, I think it, I, I think it might be eleven hundred pages. It's a big book. Wow. Okay, that's a book. Yeah. What I like about that is, look, n no doubt, Warren Buffett is a shark. That dude is ruthless. But he's also a person who has built an entire brand around integrity. Um, and again, a lot of people won't know this now, but there's a time in the early late eighties, early nineties, where he actually acquires a controlling stake effectively controlling stake in Solomon Brothers Investment Bank in New York. And they basically uh, do some really dodgy stuff. He's on the board. He's on the hook. Effectively, the CEO walks out and he ends up being appointed. Now, this is before a lot of us would have been paying much attention, so we don't know it. But there was a that he ends up having to testify to some Senate committee. And literally, it comes down to the government is going to choose whether they're going to effectively kill Solomon or they're going to keep it alive. And it all comes down to the fact that Warren Buffett is willing to put his reputation on the line for Solomon, that he's going to clean it up. And he says to the select committee, uh, kind of comes out and says, I've told our people, if you lose money for the firm, I will be forgiving. If you lose one shred of reputation for the firm, I will be ruthless, right? That's sort of bastard, screwing it up a little mm. bit, but you know, it's an interesting read. I like the paraphrase. Yeah. Even if it's a paraphrase, I love it because that's people underestimate. Maybe that's sort of generalizing, but 
I've even at some point, you know, underestimated the the point of, I guess, the value of reputation. And what I've learned, I would say, in helping build this business, Change Law Media, is it's about relationships and that's reputation, you know, that you can't have a valuable relationship if you don't have a good reputation or worth working with. And that's everything. It's everything for our business. Yep. Is reputation. Absolutely. Um, And so hearing those stories, because... Obviously, he has to be aggressive to to have created the outcomes he has. But I think that general social narrative is that the people who are successful are somehow bad people. And I don't think he's a bad guy. I think he drives a hard bargain and he knows what value looks like and, and you know he's going to assert his position. But he's he seems to always act with integrity and that has always been a key part of his success. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a bit counter to the, the broad narrative. Another book that I've read through, um, or two books really, I'm going to end up with three, they're all biographies, but that's highly related. Uh, One is called The First Tycoon, and the other one is called Titan. You may have heard of these books. So The First Tycoon, uh, the subtitle is The Epic Life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, and Titan is about uh, John D. Rockefeller and the rise of Standard Oil. And obviously their two worlds are somewhat connected and that Vanderbilt was the richest person in America prior to Rockefeller and effectively Rockefeller really takes off in part because of the deal that he does with Vanderbilt. There's some crazy stories in there like, uh, you know, Rockefeller goes down to, and to put in context, depending on which measure you use, like Bezos is still pretty broke compared to Rockefeller. I think the current estimates are that Rockefeller would have a net worth of somewhere around $660 billion in today's money. But Young Rockefeller is is getting into the oil trade, and he goes down to New York from Cleveland, and Cornelius Vanderbilt basically controls all the railway lines, right? And he's going to go and see Cornelius Vanderbilt, and he gets this thing saying, Cornelius Vanderbilt will see you at this address at this time. And he goes back, and he's like, well, the fact he can send me a telegram says he knows where, where I am, he can come to me. And this is like, you know, a 20-something-year-old, you know, upstart that's got nothing going on, saying to the richest guy in the world, you, you can cut, like, the confidence in this guy was just ridiculous. Mm. Now, admittedly, part of his confidence came from this person who was highly religious, and he believed that God had tapped him to make as much money as he could to do good for the world. And so he acted almost like a religious zealot in his own belief. Anyway, he he has he meets with Vanderbilt, well, actually with, with an agent of Vanderbilt's, and he does this deal, and I'll get the numbers wrong, but it's effectively says, I'm going to do like 60 tanker lo- well, they weren't tankers, but 60 carriage loads worth of oil a day on your network. And they sign this deal, and Rockefeller has to go back to Cleveland because he's only producing about like 10% of that number a day right now, and suddenly he's got to find the product to put on all these trains, and he becomes this, he ends up effectively controlling the railway network because oil becomes the product that's moving around the place right so anyway these two books they're both ginormous books and what i like about them is both the general business lessons that are in there coupled with the fact that you get a really great history of the growth and development of like new york before anything had been discovered in america you know like Vanderbilt starts out where it's like it's still it's still not even called New York, right? It's a, <laughs> it's a Dutch colony, <laughs> you know, uh, and he's and they're putting boats on the water, and then you kind of follow through the two books, and by the time you get to the end of it, you know they've got the gold rush has been covered, the Panama Canal's under development, you know, you you actually get a history lesson. So I like those books because I'm never going to go and buy a history book. 
I'm going to buy a business biography. If I can get two things for the price of one and now know the history of you know America, that's a win for me. I like biographies, but I never considered the fact that they're history lessons of, I suppose, different eras of time through somebody's story. It would, it would make sense that that's the case, but I never really considered that as a goldmine in terms of like history and business all in one book. Yep. And that's perspective. And what's interesting there is I think is we think about today's time, right? Railways, oil, these were like physical things. You know, these were distribution channels, so to speak, for product. And we got to think about like today, what are our distribution channels? You know, almost even comparing Amazon as it relates to what's the kind of, what's the main thing you see UPS and FedEx drivers carrying or even USPS drivers like here in the United States, for example, a lot of the times it's Amazon boxes of sorts, you know, at least one or more in every handhold of a delivery person, you know, coming to my home is like Amazon or somebody else or my neighbors or whatever. So like, you know, that's the thing that's moving things. And in many ways, Amazon has their own delivery channels now. I mean, that they're, they're a Goliath on that front in terms of distribution and moving product and stuff like that. Effectively, all major companies, if you, if, you, if you want to talk about building, I guess today would be a trillion dollar business, you're effectively trying to construct a toll booth at a, at a critical juncture to the market. You know, what is the app store if not a toll booth to access iPhone users? You know, what is AdWords with Google if not the gateway to the internet for everybody, right? Where they're standing there clipping the ticket. And this is the thing, Amazon almost has more of these than anybody else, which is why I'm, I'm personally really bullish on the Amazon model. I mean, you look at uh, Amazon Web Services and there, there's, a, there's a comment, actually, sorry, I'm kind of going all over the place here, but the, the saying is, if you spend a dollar offline, some part of that's probably going to Warren Buffett. If you spend a dollar online, some part of that's probably going to Jeff Bezos, right? Because even if you, you know, you see these people who go, I'm not going to give any money to Amazon because I don't like how they're treating their warehouse workers but right right you could go into that one for a while but anyway moving past that and it's like cool so how do you boycott like most of the internet because he's making money when you go and visit reddit it's on aws he's making money when you go anywhere here it's always how do you put yourself on those junctures to the market now i'm not saying every business should but if you want to build something truly massive you've got to find those sort of pinch points so in terms of size then are you trying to build something truly massive? <laughs> so, I mean, you've you've got some wisdom from these biographies. You obviously have some vision for where, where you want to go. At nine years old, you knew what you wanted to do. Mm. Are you building something truly massive? Is that, you know, where you're at today in terms of Ray Gun and it, the business it is doesn't mean that that's where you'll be throughout your whole lifetime. You may move on to something else, but what are you trying to do? My personal sort of view is I, I always treat everything as a, as a learning experience. I think that there is a broadly accepted untruth that a lot of very successful people had a clarity of vision right out the gate, when the reality actually is, is that if you're a strategic thinker and you kind of do a check-in frequently about where you're at and you adjust your sights, right? So I, again, I'll, I'll lean, on our, uh, lean on our good friend, Bill Gates. You know, he has a quote from early Microsoft, which is one day Microsoft might be a large company. It might employ 30 people, right? Bill <laughs> Gates didn't set out going, I'm going to dominate the entire industry. 
Now, they one well, actually, one other Microsoft story that a lot of people aren't aware of is that their original internal motto was "We set the standard." That was their view that anything that was going to happen in computers, they wanted to at least be the one that set the bar. Um, and I think that was actually the signal, really, about the ambition. So ambition, where you are, where you want to get to, they are always in, in a bit of, well, ambition can be pretty well fixed, but the other two kind of adjust based on the current situation. All that is to say is that uh, I have very large ambitions. Raygun is a part of that story for now. Uh, it may not be part of the story forever. Uh, it may still be a piece of the story. I personally, uh, you can probably piece together from some of the people I've referred to in here, like Warren Buffett. I'm a big believer in the power of uh, SaaS businesses and the idea of having multiple revenue streams and things like that. So the potential to one day have a portfolio of companies that are all sort of um, acting in unison or at least uh, part of part of my, call it a conglomerate, if you will, is probably a little bit mm -hmm. what I'm starting to map out. Don't hold me to that. <laughs> might change over time but yeah that's kind of where i'm thinking the other thing and i know we talked about it before we actually jumped on here but we haven't discussed much is you know i'm down here in new zealand and so one thing that's going on here is our a country where our largest export is agriculture we make great meat we have a lot of land low debt population density software and technology is our number four export at the moment for the country and I am a huge, huge believer that uh, software should be New Zealand's number one export. As you noted um, as well, you know, New Zealand is tucked right down the bottom of the South Pacific. We're in a world where climate change is a thing. The miles to market is hugely problematic for us. Why would we focus on industries that play to our natural disadvantages? Compare that to, say, my business, where it's like, well, we can host our data anywhere. Time to market is measured in milliseconds. Um, you know, there's very little in the way of a carbon footprint of trying to get something from New Zealand to the world if it's on the internet. Uh, and you even asked um, before we started, you know, what about the challenges of getting to market? Well, thanks to the internet, you know, the, it would be more work to not be an international player. <laughs> You know, a lot of people don't know we're a New Zealand business, uh, to be honest. We don't flaunt it um, in, in any major way. But this actually plugs a little bit into my own purpose, which is I would like to be a significant tr contributor to getting the IT exports from New Zealand to the number one spot and being a significant component of that export revenue for, for New Zealand. Now, that might not sound like the ambition of like an Elon Musk or a Bill Gates or, uh, or anything like that. but um, it's kind of where my next steps lie, because if I can achieve that, then the question becomes the next size of the game, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, how do you take it from there? Yeah. So, yeah. Again, one year, 10 years. What are we going to do? <laughs> so what's your what's your rough range of years for that then? 10 years or less than that? What, what does it take to do that? What are some of the steps you have to take? Well, to put it in context, if you were targeting today doing about 20% uh, of the, actually 25% of the export revenue of the country would be about a $2 billion a year revenue run rate company. So I would say you'd need, you'd need closer to the 10-year than the one-year mark on that one. Okay. So, <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing. I'm always just, I'm hungry for that challenge. And I, I actually do see a leadership coach I have for a few years. You know, and I was talking to her the other day. I was working on some of these plans um, that I have, and and I said, she said, "Well, what do you think the next step is?" And I laughed, and she said, "Why are you laughing?" And I said, "Well, because my immediate thought is I need to go and do these things, right?" And she was like, "Yeah, well, the the 
the issue is is that successful people almost um, never struggle with the how, right? You will always figure out the how. That is kind of what what's actually made you successful. And it also means that it's the thing that you usually want to actually go and do because it's quote unquote easy for you. It's enjoyable. You know, you go to the gym for the first time in a few years and you hate it because you, you don't work that out. But solving the how is something that you do all the time. Okay, new problem. How are we going to overcome it? New problem. How are we going to overcome it? So you start to overly optimize on the how and you forget to think about the what. And is this the best what that I should be putting all of my how effort into? Mm, yeah. Think of them like resources. Yep. You know, your your how and what. And I think the other one is is why. Absolutely. This comes back to personal purpose. Yes. And I actually this, you know, touched on it a little bit earlier in our conversation. I struggled a bit with purpose because I had this goal, which was to to own a growing and successful software business, right? And I and I achieved that. But a goal is not a purpose. And I'd confuse the two of them. And then when again my coach would be like right what's the purpose and i just i just kept struggling with this question because it wasn't coming to me you know and um you know to again i'll share a bill gates one their their uh original one was and, and it's funny that they they kind of tweaked this but it was microsoft was founded uh based on bill gates vision of a computer on every desk and in every home and the bit that they usually cut from that off the end was running Microsoft software. <laughs> that was not the bit that was in the public very much. And I was like, man, you know what? This guy's amazing. How do you have that clarity of vision and purpose, you know, like so early on? Anyway, where I'm going with this is that I learned for me, it wasn't to look about look at what I wanted. Like it wasn't to look at it in a positive light. It was actually to figure out something that made me really, really, really angry. <laughs> because Anger is a signal, right? Anger itself is almost a useless emotion other than to almost be like an interrupt to your brain of like, this is important, right? Now, somebody may, it may be a boundary violation. It may be whatever the heck it is. It's kind of irrelevant, but it matters. And that was when I was like, oh, you know what? This is why I've actually focused on the New Zealand piece is I, I love this country. It's a great country. Um, I have lived in other countries. I actually lived literally over the road from day one Amazon's headquarters for three years in Seattle. But that's where I was like, why the hell are we wasting all of this like this carbon footprint? New Zealand could have an amazing culture if it actually just hitched its wagon to the, the transformation that is the software industry around the world. And they've kind of been a bit tepid about it. Um, in the past. And so that was when I sort of started to go, oh, well, if I'm getting, to use the, the Twitter words these days, if I'm getting triggered by this situation, well, maybe my purpose is actually to try and resolve that situation or at least be a contributor to fixing it. And so that was the magic for me on kind of going, this is it. It was figuring out the hell I was willing to die on. <laughs> Which is the struggle. I think, you know, we we seem to have some direction young, some ambition maybe that's the what really drives us when we're younger in through our 20s and somehow we get to it doesn't have to be 30s or 40s but some sort of age of maturity and somebody else's version of that maturity might be 25 30 35 40 but the point is is that at some point you begin to really think about like this thing of purpose like what really matters to you your words was what hill are you willing to die on and i think it takes it takes a little living to find that out you know, a little of dislike and like of life, a little bit of experience, dare I even say wisdom, you know, to sort of gain some experience yep. to really, truly appreciate the hill that you're willing to die upon. 
and the why and the how and all the things. And this loops right back to the start, right? Which is there are things you can control. Find the thing that actually matters to you and then put your life's work into resolving that thing rather than sitting on Twitter and raging. <laughs> yeah. Nobody says, you know what? My purpose is to solve the issue of this orange egg on, uh, <laughs> on Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> well, Jay, one thing I think you've been keying on, but I'm curious if you've, for some reason, may have a list, but what are some things that you do that keeps you sharp? You'd mentioned running. Obviously, you like to read biographies. You've quoted Bill Gates more than anybody I've ever talked to which is just fine. Oh, I could keep going. <laughs> I bet you could. And I love that. And I, I like this aspect about you. You've got a life, you've got a business coach, as you mentioned, you know, what are some of the practices that you do to keep you sharp, to keep you focused, to keep you on the track that you want to be on? And I think that's what we all want, right? We want to be on a track we want to be on. Cause what is a track? It's pretty straight, generally smooth, hopefully, unless it's a rusty track, but what things do you do to keep you, on the track you want to be on? Nobody's asked me that question before. And I think you, you, you noted it earlier as it's keyed into a lot of what we've talked about, like the people you surround yourself with. I've got a really great set of friends, um, you know, some, some up in Seattle, some, some in other parts of New Zealand and others around the world where, you know, I stay in contact with them and I'm just always learning so much from them. And I, this might sound silly, but I often find myself thinking, gosh, I, I, I really want to um, ensure that I'm contributing value back to them because I'm I'm deriving so much from them. Ignoring the things we'd sort of lightly covered on throughout this talk and probably pretty in, important is it's about what I don't do. If I was listening to this point, I would probably be thinking this guy's really focused. He seems to be really driven and he's put a lot of effort into reading these things and understanding and thinking about it. That sounds bloody tiring to me. <laughs> That's a lot of work. I actually do put a fair bit of focus on what do I do for my downtime? How do I disconnect? What do I like? So I, I do have an 18 month year old son named Henry. Um, and he's been wonderful. He's a great distraction. I try to spend time with him. I'm a very engaged father with him. I allocate a decent amount of time to playing around with computers at home. And, and I do play, I play Starcraft 2 a lot very old game but i enjoy that and I, I do try to kind of block out those times to not be working to not be on the mission so that when i'm on the mission <laughs> mm -hmm. i've never really enjoyed so much when there is a, a superman sort of narrative around very successful people now like like we've talked about people like warren buffett right i'll be honest i i think the people that are at the the you know maybe the top 100 financially successful performers in the world i think they have some sort of mental problem and i don't mean that in a derogatory way i just don't think that it's natural and i don't think there's anything wrong with them doing it but you kind of realize they're just wired very very differently they're deriving a lot of life satisfaction from that level of obsession i'm obsessed but i'll be honest if i had a billion dollars burning a hole in my back pocket I'd probably choose some things to do with my time around my son and family rather than like ignore them and just make the next billion dollars. Um, I'd still want to make the next billion dollars, but I wouldn't do it at the cost of all of those other things. So yes, the sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, it's a bit of a long winded waffly answer, but it, it, it's actually more about finding that downtime and letting yourself think. In fact, I'll draw you one more story. 
this actually goes back to the the Titan book about Rockefeller, and I have a theory here because you this Rockefeller actually defined effectively the the modern management structure of the executive team, and back then there was no no telephone lines, there was nothing, and yet he was running a multinational business, right? We think it would be hard to run a large business now. But you've actually got instantaneous global communication networks. You've got software that's telling you what people are doing. You, you've got your finger on the pulse. These were people with chalkboards that were going to take a week or a month to get a message across an ocean. How the heck did they run these businesses and, and run them successfully, right? It's a bit of a conundrum. One bit of, uh, of the book in Titan, it talks about John D. Rockefeller's day. Now, this was obviously far beyond when he did the first deal with Vanderbilt. He was now a very wealthy man, had a lot, a lot, of, a lot of people in the business. And his day would largely be come to the office, read through his, his letters. There'd be a chalkboard in his office that chalk up the price of oil and whatnot. He would uh, have lunch with the executive team. He would never sit at the head of the table. And he'd go back to his office and he would have a lie down on a couch that was in there and have a little bit of a nap and somebody would come in and read him some stuff while he would lie there with his eyes shut and then kind of move on, you know. And you read this stuff and, you know, I know again, today people would be like, yeah, but if you're really, really rich, you can get away with it. You couldn't get away with it today. I actually think that in a weird way, despite my love of computers, Having a device in front of you that screams for your attention and gives you to the millisecond like updates on things is really unhealthy. And the reason it's really unhealthy and why there is such a success differential is because you're not getting any time to think. And this connects back to like why I like running. It's the thinking time. It's the time where all you're left with is you and your brain to contemplate. And Rockefeller had a heck of a lot of time to contemplate versus a modern executive uh, would have. Yeah. And that's where the, that value comes from. I will also just say they also had a lot less legislation and stuff back then, and you definitely do not read the uh, Vanderbilt or the or the Rockefeller book and expect a story on integrity uh, like the snowball. But <laughs> <laughs> it was just one thing I kept wondering about. I was like, hmm, do I really, you know, we, we talk about emails and, watching all these metrics and dashboards around the office. And it's like, I don't know. He kind of demonstrated that that's actually not the, that's not a key to success. It's just a thing that makes us feel like we're being productive, but we're not thinking. Being busy, essentially. Exactly. Being distracted. Mm -hmm. Interruptions, mm -hmm. distraction. I agree. Like if we spent more time with our brains intentionally to contemplate, as you say, you know, I, I think we'd have, I'd give a challenge to anybody. To, to take that time, to do what you say, actually plan your downtime. I'm glad you said that rather than the things that you do. It's the things you don't do. Yep. Because I think if you intentionally spend time with yourself contemplating what your end game might be, what your values are, what your, what your why is, not just the how, as you'd mentioned, because that seems to be pretty easy for those that might be listening to the show or even be curious about entrepreneurship and running things and being a leader and all those different things. Like that's the easier part is the how, not so much the what or the or the why. And if you spend time with yourself intentionally, I like your idea of running, although I'm not a runner. For me, it's mountain biking. I, I get out there and do that. That's my time to think. So I can appreciate that. Reserve time in your calendar to think. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think that has helped me immensely was doing things even when other people thought it was weird. Like, when was the last time you took a day of annual leave and your whole purpose for that day of annual leave was to think about your goals and what you wanted to achieve in life? And you you maybe took a pad and you might go and sit 
in a local park or in a, in a, or in a woods, take a walk and do one day. And I, I will guarantee that almost nobody would do that, despite the fact that that would be potentially the best use of your time for the impact on your life. First for you to sit down and write that stuff out. Like I, and, and I'm not saying that as an insult to anybody. I'm sort of the same. Sometimes I sit there and I go, I want to diagram something out. But I don't want to put the pen to paper until I kind of know roughly what I'm going to do. And it's like, what, JD, why are you trying to save one sheet of paper? Like to slow down, actually, just do the second one with what you learn as you go. You know, like there's, there's all these things in your mind Excuses. that are going to give you reason. Yeah, why don't do this? Don't do this. Don't do that. And you're like, ah, screw it. Just do it. Like, mm-hmm. just go ahead. Um, you know, you can't then go and sit in the woods writing every single day. That won't get you there either. But having a blend is, is pretty useful. I think what your point might be is that it's not easy just – it's kind of easy just to blend the phone, I suppose, or the distraction, the machine in front of you yep. screaming for your attention to use your words back to you. Mm-hmm. You know, It's kind of easy to blame that. In some cases, it's it's you know mindset. In some cases, it's habit. But I think we get in sort of to this default gear, right? The, the default gear is is what we do, and we never take that time or appreciate what that time might give us if we slow down enough. Yes. You know, and I think that's the thing is, and that, that thing, you know, sitting down in the park writing and contemplating might be what you do. That variation for me or someone else might be different, but it's the time to consider. That's what we often don't do. We're so, we're so just distracted and interrupted with our busyness, you know, because I think like, gosh, if I did that, JD, I'd probably go there and sit there and, well, I don't Instagram anymore. I've, I've kind of, I've given it up, but I'm, you know, I might be, let me check my email. Does somebody need me somewhere else? Like I might be distracted with my potential need somewhere else rather than my need right then and there. Yeah. And so, so too often are we just like in our default gear. We need to shift. Absolutely. And, and don't be afraid of looking weird. Two examples of this. One, the richest guy in New Zealand. And, and I realize, by the way, that I've referred to a lot of things in this podcast around somebody's wealth. And I, I don't actually subscribe to the view that your wealth is your success. Um, it's just a measure. Um, and so I'm not as hung up as it may seem on that. But New Zealand's richest man was a guy called Graham Hart, or is a guy called Graham Hart. He's worth about $12 billion and I think about half of the world's packaging. So like, you know, I think Starbucks cups and stuff are actually produced by his firms. Anyway... He's quite enigmatic character. He's not well-known. And that's another one. Like, everybody kind of thinks you have to be well-known. This guy's built a $12 billion fortune, and he basically, I think, has done, like, one in- He's unknown. He's done, like, one interview in, like, 20 years, as far as I can piece together. He can go to the grocery store, no problem. Oh, sure. Absolutely. But I was really interested in this because he was a tow truck driver. And he went to a university in New Zealand, and he wrote his MBA thesis on how he was going to build this organization. And so there's actually his, I actually want to go to this university and see if it's in their library, his, his sort of work, because he basically then just went and executed his plan and just built this astronomical organization. So I was kind of obsessed with this guy and I was clipping every piece of newspaper and anything I could find and sticking it to the door of my, my bedroom when I first moved to Wellington here. And, you know, people like that come over because it was a flatting situation, right? And you had flatmates and and I'd be like, what the heck is this guy up to? And I was like, well, this is what matters to me. And I'm, I'm not ashamed. Of it. And around the computer, I had all of this stuff about source code to help me be a better programmer, right? And it was like, you're a weird guy. People put up pictures of sportsmen or, you know, semi-clad women. Like, that's what normal 20-year-olds do, not, not this. And I just didn't care. I will admit, you know, it was uh, <laughs> my, my 
you know, early on before I was married, you know, dating women. It was always a bit of an awkward conversation starter if they did come back to my place because it's like, wait, you got all these pictures of this like 40-year-old dude on the back of your door? Yeah, trust me. Trust me. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but accept those weird uh, oddities. Second one, and this is more of a bit of an oddity that I just wanted to share with the audience because one thing I used to think a lot about was was how to motivate yourself. You know, you have those days where you're just, you're cranking, right? You're ready to absolutely just slug the ball out of the, out of the stadium. And then you have other days where you're just like, man, where did that feeling go? Like, why am I so down today? Like, and I used to think, God, if there was a pill for motivation, you know, like I take that every day. And I, I mentioned the Avengers movies. I'm a big fan of the Iron Man movies because, you know, unsurprisingly, geek into business loves the idea of a guy that just sort of hacks at stuff at course, home. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I actually bought some video editing software years ago now, probably seven or eight years ago. And I went through those movies and I cut out every scene that I found to be like, yeah, this has got me, got me humming, right? And I condensed it down into about a 12-minute clip. And I was like, okay, this is the closest I've got to this pill. If I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking I'm just not feeling today, put that on, crank up some music, get myself in the zone. Right, you're going to Tony Stark this day. you know. Um, now, I can see, I know the video doesn't get photo. I can see you smiling. I know everybody I ever tell this to is like, wow, you are a weird cat, JD. And I'm like, I don't care. I end up motivated. That's what I needed. <laughs> but I see people who, who do, you know, they, they wouldn't even do that in secret because it feels weird. And it's like, just be weird. We're all weird. We're all just pretending we're not. I'm a little weird, JD. I don't, I, I didn't buy editing software to edit Iron Man clips down to a motivational video for me, <laughs> but that is inspiring. I think what you do though, however, is you've got to find your motivational pill. And for you, that was you. you know, Absolutely. That was what your That's was. right. I'm sure this video clip would do nothing for anybody else. <laughs> I, I like the idea of owning your oddities, your weirdness. Mm. I do that. You know, we don't know each other in the in the world normally. You know, we, we haven't hung out. But, you know, there's some things that I do that are unique that I only do in seclusion. If I do some of these things that I, that I might do in private time, they're nothing weird, so so to speak, but they're just peculiar, mm -hmm. you know, not like I don't think anybody else does. And so I appreciate those things about me. And, you know, I definitely have taken that advice where I've got to find my motivational pill. Okay. You know, it's not the same thing every single day. Sometimes it's music. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, you know, hanging out with my kids. I love it when my son says, you know, I've got to go to work. I've got to get some things done. He says, Dad, can you play with me? Mm. Yeah. Totally. I'll give you five minutes. I might not give you the full hour, but I'm totally going to sit down because you asked me. Yes. But that five minutes or 10 minutes that I sit there and play with them with trucks in the sand or whatever it might be, or building some Legos for those few minutes or whatever, he loves it. I love it. And I, I walk away with purpose. So that's my motivational pill sometimes. Like it might vary throughout life or through the days, you know, but I, I definitely have to hand it to you. That's that's, a, that's something to edit that clip, for sure. You get out what you put in. <laughs> Since you have your son, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this then. For me, it's my micro moments. So COVID life, things the way they are now, it's kind of always been that way for me because I've always worked from home. Mm -hmm. I've always had a home studio. So day-to-day, -day, generally because of COVID-19 and coronavirus, hasn't really 
dramatically changed my home environment, except from, you know, for a while there, my kid just didn't go to preschool and, you know, we generally just didn't leave a lot. So that was the one thing that could sort of change. So I always worked from home. So I always had to battle that sort of, you know, dad, will you play with me versus having to be busy and go to work and do different things and be responsible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's sort of how uh, life was for me. But for me, it's micro moments. Like I will walk out and make some tea or some coffee or get a snack and my family is in my break room, right? And so those are my micro moments. I love that. Like I'm going to I'm gonna eat that up. For me, my motivation, my fuel is those micro moments. And I'm so thankful for them. Like I, I'm truly thankful for them because I get to spend those that five minutes where my kid says, you play with me. And my answer isn't no. Mm-hmm. That fuels me. You know, like my heart's desire is to say yes. Or, you know, mid-interview here with you, this conversation, he might pop in the, uh, he hasn't, but he might. I'd say, hey, do you want to say hi to JD? Maybe not on the camera, like, whatever. But mm. the point is, is I, I won't say, get out of here, I'm busy. Yep. Come on in, say hello. And then probably leave once it's time. But like, I'm not going to tell him he can't come in here or my kids, they can't come in here. Now, obviously they're not distracting me all day long, but those are my micro, the point is the micro moments. You got to really appreciate what you've been given. It might be family, it might be friends. For me, it's kids and my wife and my family. For others, it's different, but you know, it's not always the same shape or same size. The point is, is enjoy those micro moments you've been given in life and appreciate them because that's, that's my Tony Stark 10-minute clip. You know what I'm saying? Well, the whole story of Tony Stark becomes one of being a bit more present, right? And that's, that's the thing. I suspect with a lot of the, the listeners and yourself, you know, I found having, having a kid uh, was certainly really powerful for bringing me back into the now and not just being like, what is the next thing? To kind of quote uh, Tony Stark, if you will, in the first movie, you know, he sort of says, there is nothing else. There's only the next mission. And then, you know, his story arc finishes with he has a daughter and, um, you know, he, he sort of realized that there is more to life than just focusing on the next mission. And that has been really helpful, I think, for, for me, having him around. We had a pretty intense lockdown in New Zealand. We may or may not have heard. We've now managed to effectively eradicate COVID from the country twice, which is good. Uh, so we're, we're largely sort of living normally without any international travel. But for the there was about eight weeks or so where it was heavily locked down. And, and as I mentioned, there's a lot of wilderness mm-hmm. around, around where I live. And so just the every day, he was going to daycare prior, but... I'd strap him to the front pack, you know, he would have been about 13, 14 months, so he's not too heavy at that point, and we'd go out for a walk through the, you know, through the forest, and, and that was my daily thing that I was always looking forward to. It was it was with him, and it was thinking time, and it was exercise, um, and I, oddly enough, I, I look back now, and I realize if it wasn't for the COVID lockdown, I would never be looking back on those memories and that, and, that, and being present in those times, mm-hmm. because I would have just kept kind of doing a bit of the work stuff. I do do, do the stuff at home. I just wouldn't have had those daily walks for, for eight weeks, which were really nice. Yeah. You have to appreciate those things. Mm. Mm. And it takes intention and slowing down to appreciate those things. I mean, because sometimes things move by so fast, like you had said, the, the next mission Gosh, if that was if that was all life was, what you couldn't appreciate the the little nuances that make your life what it is to even do it in the first place. That's right. That's right. And it, and it can get you can get a little bit myopic on those things when you are, when you are quite a driven person and and not sort of you know what's the saying stop and smell the roses, um, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. Yeah. 
Well, J.D., I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It does have to end. <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in this long. Hopefully, you will have gone to the show notes, checked out some of the books that J.D. and I have talked about. I will do my best to show note. We do have our show notes on GitHub, so they are open source. And if you can do that, gladly accept a pull request for links that are relevant to what we've talked about on the show. If it's a book, if it's a quote, if it's a Bill Gates thing, if it's a John D. Rockefeller thing, if it's a history thing, if it's your favorite book, drop in the comments. We love that. But uh, JD, thank you so much for sharing this time and this wisdom with us. Truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Adam. I really appreciated it too. What's up, Adam here. Thank you so much for tuning in to Founders Talk. If you enjoyed this show, do me a favor. Share it on Twitter, share it on Insta, share it with a friend. Tell someone you love this show if you got value from it. As you know, we're backed by some awesome partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Check them out. We get tremendous value from their services, and you might as well. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. Breakmaster is our beats master in residence. Thanks again for tuning in. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time.